0: What do you do when the lead starts slinging? When the rounds start going downrange? What do you do afterwards? How do you survive a gunfight, but more importantly, maybe, how do you thrive after one? Our guest today, Chuck Rylant, is here to answer that question. You are a warrior. What kind of vehicle
1: is it?
2: You are the very best your nation has to offer.
1: 911. Oh. Multiple shots fired.
0: They're asking you. To leave.
1: Five. We need a bear cat.
0: It's up to us. So 133. I need somebody that's got a visual
2: where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit.
0: Where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one.
2: Copy running Eastbound. The one that will bring everyone back
1: trouble if we have shot,
2: fired, shot, fired. give
1: me back up now
2: because no one else is coming i have an
1: officer shot an officer shot one hundred block of lead street suspect is down suspect is down
2: this is the squad room
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 84 of The Squadron. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. I am a sergeant for a sheriff's office in Southern California. And on this show, our goal is to help you, the modern warrior, achieve your full potential by deconstructing the things that can make us more successful, more, uh, more impactful, more relevant, more effective, and better. This show is about being a better modern warrior and how we need to be the leaders in our country. Now, our guest today is Chuck Ryland. He is the author of a book called "Shots Fired: The Psychology Behind Officer-Involved Shootings." Chuck works, uh, or worked, until he had to medically retire uh, in an agency within my jurisdiction. And uh, you know, unfortunately, we've never actually had met face to face in our during our careers. Um, but he he went out and he asked the question, "What's it like to go through a police shooting?" And from the officer's perspective. And he went out and he was able to find 12 brave officers who were willing to tell their story. And it's a really fantastic read. He distills down the essence of each of these events. It's very... um, You read this as if you know the people and it's a conversation. The way he wrote it is really fantastic. And uh, I thought it would be great to have him on because uh, we can tease out some themes from each of these And he's able to tell us what it took for the guys who did well after a gunfight, how they succeeded, how they thrived after it, and what were the things that tripped up some of the other guys. And I think it's important stuff to think about. If you haven't thought yet, if you're you're already in law enforcement or you're going into law enforcement, and you know that's your path, and you haven't yet thought about this potential, then... You're you're too late. Almost, you need to get on this, and it's really one of the most important things we could be doing. Uh, Chuck has been involved in law enforcement for over 20 years. Um, He began his law enforcement career as a patrol officer and then detectives. He was a SWAT officer. He's a firearms and arrest and control uh, instructor at the police academy, and also a firearms instructor at Front Sight Firearms Institute uh, out there in Las Vegas. Uh, he retired from law enforcement, but he's a, he is a lead archon uh, instructor still to this day, and he teaches the train-the-trainer course here in California. Uh, Chuck has a really great outlook on <laughs> just on life in general, but on uh, police work and our import- the importance of the work we do. But this is an important conversation to have, and it's one that you need to think through on your own. What are you going to do? how are you going to handle this are you ready for this so uh please enjoy this conversation with chuck ryland chuck welcome to the show
2: hey thanks for having me i'm glad we were able to hook up
0: yeah it's funny you know we uh, we actually we actually live in the same county uh we work at neighboring jurisdictions yet we uh have never been able to meet face to pay, face um but i'm glad that we're at least able to do this uh you've got um a history in law enforcement we'll get to that in a second but you're also also the author of a book that I think is important for every officer to read and especially for new officers. Uh, and you're the author of a book called Shots Fired, The Psychology Behind Officer-Involved Shootings. And we'll get to that uh, book because that's what, largely what we're going to talk about. But at first, I want you to go through your, uh, your, your credentials, for lack of a better term, your voir dire, sure. and just tell everybody about yourself and, and how you came into law enforcement and what was your career like.
2: Yeah, sure. So I'm kind of in my second career now. Uh, so my first career was law enforcement, where I was a cop for 15 years. I worked at two different jurisdictions. And in in that, I did several different things, including um, patrol, where everybody starts. I was an FTO. Then I was a detective, and I did SWAT. And really, a big part of my job or career was training. So I did arrest and control, which is defensive tactics. A lot of people call it that. Um, and, um, the SWAT and the shooting stuff. So that kind of was the beginning of my first career.
0: hmm Uh, and what, describe the city you were working in. And, and I don't know if you're, I mean, you're, re- you're retired from there now, so you may not, you probably can say it, but some people can if they're still working there. Yeah,
2: sure. So I started in Lompoc, mm-hmm. which is a small town, um, off the 101 in California, Kind of in between San Francisco and Los Angeles, that was a small community There was probably forty to fifty officers at the time, mm-hmm. and that was a really, really fun place to start because it was high density of crime in a very small neighborhood, and there was three of us at night and so for four years, we were running around having a good old time as a twenty year old some twenty something year old cop and okay. it was a lot of fun. I got a lot of the stuff that I entered police work for the mm-hmm. stuff that It was on TV when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Then I transferred to Santa Maria, which was about double, two to three times the size. Same thing, bigger, but a lot more money, so a lot more officers. So there was still a lot of crime, uh, but it was spread out amongst a much larger department. So there was action, but not as much. And then I got into the detectives and was able to kind of use more of my, I guess, my brain or sit behind a desk more and do a different side of law enforcement. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Both of those cities, uh, Santa Maria, especially my experience, and I can speak to this directly. <clears throat> I mean, those are le- those are legit crime cities, right? I mean, yeah. the the mayor is not going to be happy when I say that, but but like <laughs> you, you've got stuff going on, and there's um, there's righteous gangs in Santa Maria, and we just had a big MS-13 trial of a uh, crew out of Santa yeah. Maria that was doing a lot of stuff. So, and, and it's it's the one uh, it's the city near where I in this area where I say like. I could pluck a Santa Maria guy, uh, a Santa Maria gangster and put him in uh, East LA and he would go he would go toe to toe. He could stand up to that kind of uh that kind of gangster, right? Um that's my that's yeah, been we, my experience.
2: We we I, I tell people we got to do everything that you see in End of Watch, but not in a 2-day period, right? <laughs> yes, Right, <laughs> maybe over a 2-year period. So it's the same thing. Right. Just right. not as intense every single day. Right. So I got to have a good career, uh, especially at my younger years when that's what I wanted in the younger years of my life, you know.
0: And you transitioned out of that, You say it's sec- uh, you trans because you say second career, you transitioned out for a medical retirement. Yes. And what are you doing now?
2: So now I'm kind of doing three different things. Part-time, I'm an author. That's about a third of my time. So I've written five different books now. Another third of my time, I'm still training at the police academy in those same... arrest and control that's kind of become my specialty and then a third thing is I've started a a high performance coaching business which I've done for many years now where I'm teaching people about kind of life coaching personal finance uh, business growth that kind of stuff so all the skills that I've been learning to improve myself I've kind of been teaching others at the same time
0: interesting you know we big premise of the show is that we all need a team and that those teams need coaches and um i have my own coaches and i've coached others in, in informal ways at various times what is you know if you're a coach do you who, who's on your team i always like to ask people that who's what? what's your team look like i mean you got these three yeah that's jobs
2: now. that's a good question because as a young cop i wouldn't be able to admit that i needed that right? kind of help yeah totally and as an older person i start realizing you're an idiot or a fool if you think you can do it all on your own so I have my own business coaches, I have advisors and taxes and that kind of stuff, lawyers when I need lawyers, and even therapists. I have used the therapist for several years for relationships and personal things. So uh, it's critically important because we can't look at ourselves honestly. We need some outside person to see the things that we can't see in ourselves.
0: Sometimes it's important to know what's unknown right and and yes and how to seek that out how to how to get those people on your team i'm I, it's still something to navigate but i i want younger officers especially to realize earlier like you just said like get the, get your team squared away early and that team might change throughout your career too um you know physical a physical coach a physical fitness coach may not be an important part of your team when you're in your 20s or 30s when you've got your own system dialed in but as we age maybe that's something that becomes more important Oh, yeah.
2: And being physical fitness is a good example. Uh, it's easy to say, I already know what to do. Eat less, move more. That's right. simple. So when you start becoming more open minded, you're realizing I'm not hiring them always for the how to, but sometimes for the keeping you accountable or getting past some of the mental roadblocks in your own head that are keeping you from getting to the next level in whatever it is that you want to do.
0: Yeah. And what's the experience been, uh, it's not the <laughs> end to watch scenarios that we were just joking about, but the comparison between law enforcement and now the second career, what's, um, I'm trying to think of how, how I best ask this question. Cause, um, I mean, this is once, this is something I always wonder about myself and this is not the purpose of why we're having you on, but now, but I want to ask this, um, you know, we think about an older officers or officers with some time on and they start thinking about a second career or maybe they're coming up on their pension date and they're transitioning out to do something else. We always wonder, and I always wonder, you know, will you ever be as fulfilled as you are in law enforcement? And there's an assumption there, I guess, that you're fulfilled in the job. But I always wonder, you know, can I go to, uh, some sort of entrepreneurial work or a city job or some desk job, nine to five where I'm not chasing bad guys and, you know, uh, giving something tangible of service. Um, do, do, is there, how, how will I survive that? That sounds maybe so.
2: I think I understand what you're asking. It's a very deep question. I think there's a lot of questions baked into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a poor, I think,
0: poorly worded question. <laughs> that's,
2: no, it's great. So I think there's several things to consider. The first is what is it that's driving you and why are you doing what you do? So me in my 20s, there was no mm-hmm. doubt. I was looking for the action, the adventure, the excitement, and the significance. So if I could come back at the end of the shift with a bunch of dope from something, I got a lot of significance from my peers or what have you mm-hmm. from achieving that. You know, um, No no different than when you're in your... your 20s and you go out and you get some beautiful looking girl right the purpose is just different than it is now that i'm in my 40s a beautiful girl in my 20s is for significance sometimes right to brag to your friends then you get in your 40s or 50s or whatever and, and the purpose for doing thing changes so for me my purpose has consciously changed from seeking significance to being able to contribute back and so I didn't feel that there was a lot of contribution in my job as a cop when I was just out there chasing, trying to get a guy in handcuffs or trying to make an arrest or whatever. Um, but now, when I transferred the skills that I learned as a cop into this new field of teaching and writing and coaching, I'm not doing it for me, I'm doing it for the other people. So I get a lot of excitement and fulfillment, the word used, out of helping other people reach their goals. Now, in my 20s, that wasn't on my radar at all. And so I've had to really make that shift. It happened naturally, um, but I was able to kind of learn how to label it and then get more focused on what I'm doing, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you, you parse the, the difference between um, the contribution and, and, and such. So uh, maybe that's what it is, is where are you getting? Where do you feel like you're contributing? Um, so, Well, one of the ways you've certainly contributed, and this relates to us, is is in your book, Shots Fired, The Psychology Behind Officer-Involved Shootings. It's a really great read, and um, I'm, I'm always curious about these, and I think any cop is, about what that experience is like if we haven't been through it ourselves. And I have not. I've been lucky that I have not been in the position yet where I've had to be involved in an officer-involved shooting. But I certainly know. More than I know, I know more cops than I want to know who've had to do this and have had to be involved in the shooting. And, you know, I think uh, a common misconception among especially the the public, but even newer or officer or people who want to be officers who weren't there yet is that this is something we look forward to or Mm -hmm. this is something we want to be involved in. Um, What what was it that motivated you to write the book in the first place?
2: Uh, there's there's multiple things um the first selfish reason was me as a trainer i've been training people for 20 years now in this type of stuff and i i had this theory that people aren't really performing the way that we tell people that we performed after it happened and what i mean by that is i've done so much research on some of the brain and function of the psychology and that I, I believed that when we're under intense stress, we're not really able to think the way that we pretend that we think afterwards when we tell the story. And what I mean by that is most people are just reacting on autopilot based on our training or lack of training or how much fear we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of my theory and I was trying to understand if that's actually true and what can we do to change or improve training So that was kind of my selfish motivation. The other two reasons I wrote it was I was getting frustrated like most officers do, watching all these stupid stories in the media that get distorted and spun. And it's frustrating because the officers never get to tell their side of the story Mm -hmm. the way that the system is set up. And so I wanted that side to be able to be told. Um, And then the third and final reason was for the officers who get in shootings who aren't really comfortable talking about it with their peers because I know a lot of guys or gals feel alone after that
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I wanted them to be able to relate to other people and say hey I'm not the only one going through these symptoms or these experiences
0: yeah this certainly seems like a book where if someone is struggling with having gone through something like this and isn't at the point yet where they can talk about it they can pick up this book and read these first hand accounts and um, like you say feel feel connected to this Larger experience, right? So, what are the themes? I mean, my my first question is, how did you? Because people are so reluctant to talk, and we're in this, you know, type A masculine kind of job where you don't, you aren't supposed to talk about feelings or right. deeper emotions. How did you? How did you convince these uh, twelve guys to share this, to share their stories with you? And how did you find them?
2: Uh, well, I'll, I'll give you a long answer and then a, a one word answer. The, the long answer was as you can know, and much of your audience will know as a cop, you become incredibly in tune with other people's, uh, thoughts, emotions, feelings, et cetera. And you can read people better than most people can. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, in all the interviews as a cop, I, um, I got used to and comfortable asking very difficult questions because you have to, as part of the job and then reading people and understanding them and knowing when it's okay to Push just a little bit harder with the next hard question, and then in my new career, I, I've done so much training and life coaching and all, all of this stuff, and then coaching people about their taxes and their finances and their business. It's, it's just a natural extension. I just got better at talking to people and uh, relating to them. But then the final answer to your question is one word, and that's just empathy. Having true empathy and and a true concern or care for what they're saying and a a real desire to hear what they're saying without judgment which as a young cop that's a very hard thing to do we all tend to bring our own baggage and judgment into the, the conversation and that shuts people down because they they see it but when they know you really sincerely care and are interested they'll open up
0: and did you just were you reading about these shootings around the country and just tracking them down or um how how did the logistics of that even work? Where oh, because I mean yeah. you've got PIOS and you've got policies that they got to go around you know and they got to get cleared. I imagine before they're mm-hmm. legally allowed to talk. Like, what was that process like?
2: Well, uh, I didn't follow anybody. It was I, I've been in this field for so long. I have quite a bit of network, like you probably do. And uh, I just knew of some of the stories through the years and started reaching out to people I knew. Okay. So a lot of them were people that I knew. Retired people were easier, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, most of them are real names. A couple of people that were still in the field wanted me to change their name just because just they didn't want any drama. And um, uh, But some people started referring me to other people too. They'd say, they'd read the story after I wrote it and they liked it and then refer me, oh, you need to speak to uh, so and so. So that was easy. I could have kept going. But then I realized that about these 12 stories, I kind of had told the story over and over. You know, the patterns started to emerge.
0: And that's exactly my next question. What are those patterns that you started to see and identify and how can, how can we learn from them?
2: Yeah, I I think, uh, the healthier end result people tended to first and foremost, not have their identity in their job. So the people who their, their whole, uh, personal livelihood or who they were in life was a cop versus I'm a family man. I'm a guy that likes snowboarding or whatever their thing is. They, I go to church mm-hmm. and I happen to do police work as a job. That seemed to be a common theme that, that it was more, you were more healthy if you had a well rounded life outside of your career. Uh, a second common pattern that really benefited the officers was when they got immediate support from the ranking people in their uh, field, so when the chief came in immediately and said, we got your back, you did the right thing, that was a huge, huge benefit. And a third one I'd say was um, those who were able to talk about it with people that were important to them versus those who were isolated, oftentimes to circumstance and uh, policy in the department. Um, so if there was a little bit of controversy, potential controversy, they felt isolated, they couldn't talk about it, and then their brains started going overdrive and they weren't really able to resolve the issues. Um, uh, those were probably the three most common things that helped people the most.
0: Did you notice anything about uh, the differences between uh, someone who's maybe got a specific kind of uh, relationship off duty, like, like a marriage versus uh, single guy's? um, or age at all.
2: Yeah, for sure. There seemed to be a a pattern where, and I remember going through this in my earlier years of my career where uh, there's, there's a thing that goes around the internet of the four stages of the cop's career. And the second stage is kind of the meltdown stage and, uh, where they're, they got this girl on the side and they're drinking and maybe using drugs and all that kind of stuff. The people in that stage that didn't have a healthy relationship uh, romantically or friends uh my interpretation was they used the shooting as an excuse to justify unhealthy behaviors alcohol fooling around at the bars all night with girls or you know that kind of thing um no one outwardly said that eh, maybe one or two actually did say that but that seemed to be uh, a common thing versus someone who had a stable home life and they uh they went home to their wives or whatever that, mm-hmm. that seemed to be kind of, is that making sense? What I'm explaining? Yeah,
0: basically those, those behaviors were already there mm-hmm. and this just gave them an excuse to, to, to sink into that.
2: Yeah. And they probably legitimately were experiencing trauma from the, the incident, but their behavior exasperated it. Right. right. and And they felt justified because they had been through it.
0: which is i don't
2: say that with judgment i completely understand
0: no yeah and i don't either it's 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 our tendency it's it's our fight or flight right and Mm -hmm. we're confronted with this uncomfortable emotion that we don't know what to do with that we're often told that is to be trained out of us which is sort of silly um Mm -hmm. and we flee from it Mm -hmm. and you either flee from it or you fight it and i think by fighting it I think you you flee it by the alcohol and the running around and doing all that nonsense, or you fight it, and then what to me that means is leaning into it and working yeah. through it and and sitting with it. You know, um, last episode we had <clears throat> one of the guys who's very influential in my life. He's not, he's not quite my coach, but he was. Uh, but we talk about sitting with that discomfort, you know, and, and just being okay with it. How? What were some of the, were there specific practices they use or that you used in your own career of how to sit with that and, f- and fight that fight uh, to be present with that pain? What, what, what were the things they did that were successful?
2: Well, I think of course it depends on the person, but I think uh, the common thing for all people in all, in, in all incidents of trauma, which could include some sort of child victimization, it could be a, a a relationship breakup, it could be uh, getting in a shooting, all all of these things, uh, the people who struggle try to pretend it didn't happen, don't talk about it, sweep it under the rug and hope that it'll go away and it doesn't ever go away, it's always there versus some sort of getting it out or as you're saying, sitting with it. So whether that's sitting in front of a therapist that you trust and talking it out, Mm -hmm. talking to a close friend, talking to a mentor, writing about a, a close friend of mine through some trauma and i I kept hassling him to write a book so he finally write wrote a book of his story and at the end of writing the book he goes i'm cured because i dealt with this so much to get it down on paper that what was i was hiding from the world before now is out and about and it's it doesn't bother me anymore rather than it you trying to keep it down and hidden the whole time so some h- way of getting it out, or as you're saying, sitting on it, whatever, whatever process that works for you mm-hmm. versus just holding it in and hiding it and burying it.
0: Now, obviously you're a writer, so this may be one of your own processes too, but what were some of your processes that you've either used as an officer or didn't use that you now use? I mean, uh, I mentioned, you know, you, you're medically retired. That is its own sort of trauma. Uh, and dealing, gosh, dealing with <clears throat> work comp, but also the injury and the the end of an identity. You know, it may not be mm-hmm. your whole identity, but it's a big part of your identity. W- what are the things you use yourself?
2: Yeah, that was actually a very dark point in my life that I've really not really shared about uh, publicly. And and what I did do to get out of that, and anyone that's been through that whole workers' comp, all that drama, uh, can understand what what I did finally do. I didn't do initially was to force myself to create a new routine, even when I didn't want to. So it's easy to just sit around and do nothing. Um, But things like exercise, going out and starting a new career, writing a book, going out and continuing your social life, doing things that you don't want to, but actually forcing it and, and faking it. You know, that whole term fake it till you make it. You really do have to go out and go to the gym when you don't want to and fake like you're an athlete in the gym and go out and ha- hang out with some friends when you don't feel social and fake like you're a social extrovert, even if you're not feeling it at that time and, and start a, uh, some sort of job for me, write a book or whatever, just force yourself to mm-hmm. do something. Um, that to me is the number one thing versus just sitting at home, being depressed, watching TV, eating Oreos. And
0: and, and I think a way too to maybe, you know, that's a, obviously a very common phrase, fake it till you make it, but really faking it. When you do that, you're acting courageously, right? You're, sure. you're being courageous and c- courage begets more courage. And if you act, you there, I, this was come from another podcast, but there's no such thing. This is, I think there's an interesting idea. There's no such thing as acting courageous because the minute you act courageous, you are courageous, right? Does that make sure. sense? Sure. So you might fake it, but you're at, you're being courageous by by going out there and making yourself do something. But then that creates quite a bit of momentum, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. And, it builds on itself, right? You're swimming upstream by going outside and taking a walk when you don't feel like it. And that's courage. Like you said, yeah.
0: So one of the, something I like to ask, because this is something I deal with. And I know based on the conversations I have with listeners that this is a common, uh, a common challenge. So you said you don't, you, you said those are the things you didn't do right away. So you obviously had a different approach to it uh, before that wasn't working. And, um you can share, if you you can share what that approach was if if you want but if you're not comfortable with that the question i'm really curious about is what happened or what did you do to finally realize that that wasn't working for you
2: yeah so what i was doing was the opposite of the things i just suggested right which yeah. is just sitting around having a pity party right and and that was not my normal style or my normal mode of life but Part of going through those kind of situations make you feel helpless and make you feel stuck. So at that particular time, I, had, I got hit with multiple things. I, I went through divorce, a business failure, an, a physical injury that was painful, um, and the loss of the job, loss of income. And, and when you go through all those c- circumstances, including particularly the workers' comp, which traps you, you're not able to go out and get another job. There are certain things that made it very difficult. Um, so I was just sitting there, just stuck, com- telling myself that, oh, this is outside of my control. And when you feel like things are outside of your control, it's it's uh, you, you feel powerless, which is the opposite thing of what cops need to feel, right? Yeah, cops need to feel that they're in charge all the time, and so doing the opposite of just sitting there feeling, um, uh, feeling that pity party. I, I, I don't know. Did that answer your question? Or no, that? it totally <laughs>
0: did. So, um, was there a, was there a rock bottom or a point where you kind of looked at yourself in the mirror and realized this, this has to change and, and what was that conversation like?
2: Yeah, it, it was, it was this, it wasn't like the moment in a movie in movies. Yeah. You have to condense the story and wake up and there's something happened. Uh, it was this progression of me being frustrated that I wasn't who I really am or who I see myself as Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out what I need to do. And it was, it was a rock bottom for me in that um, I just didn't like the person that I was during that time. And that when that built long enough, um, I decided over a course of time, I have to just start doing something, whether I, start writing a book or start working or start working out and all of the above. So there wasn't some magical moment for me, but it was a, a progression of the weight on my shoulders getting heavier and heavier and heavier until I just couldn't stand it anymore. If that makes sense.
0: No, it totally makes sense. Um, what are some of the things you used or do to identify the aspirational, the, the things you want to become or the, or at that time, you know, if mm-hmm. I'm, I imagine you like anyone else, you're still on this journey. Uh, Sure, as I am and as anyone else's. But what were the actual things you did? Was it uh, writing? Was it journaling? Was it meditation? Was it just talking with a therapist? Was it uh, talking with uh, clergy or a relationship? What was it that got you towards a clearer vision of what you wanted to become?
2: Yeah, I'll tell you two things. Uh, This is a little silly, but it works for me. When I was a kid... I didn't have any mentors. I had no male role models. I didn't have that. And so I sought out role, model, role models through fictional movie characters. So my like model of who to be was like Rambo and Rocky okay. and these kind of people, right? And as silly as it sounds, I, I, I would take from those movies and take the characteristics that I wanted to be and I'd start imitating them. And so when I was down, I would sit there and flip in those old movies and be like, you know, Rocky wouldn't sue this right now, right? Rocky would go out and run. Mm-hmm. And as silly as that sounds, that actually works for me. Uh, and I still do it to this day, is sit there and watch the movie 300, right? And be like, that's who I am. No, I'm obviously not. But in my head, that's who I think I am. And those guys wouldn't do this. And so... uh that's the one thing. The second thing is surrounding myself with people who are beyond where I want to be um, or beyond where I am. So for me in business, it's very helpful for me to go to the seminars, business seminars and conferences and and things with people that are in a different league as I am, mm-hmm. which often costs a lot of money to do, but it's very priceless. So one one of those things I did, I went to the seminar that was $10,000 with other authors and I, and I met a-list authors and became connected with them and then it's you start having phone calls with these people and you're realizing okay to be in that league i got to play a different way than i'm playing and do different things so it's it's who's in your surrounding circle Mm -hmm. um and so if your surrounding circle is people going to the bars to pick up chicks until 2 a.m and getting drunk that's who you're going to be. You're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. So
0: That's absolutely right. right. Man, the, that theme comes up all the time uh, yeah. with us. And uh, I didn't mean to cut you off either, but I was laughing when you were talking about Rambo and 300. Not because <laughs> I think it's a silly idea, but because from the day we were recording this, three days ago, I was watching 300 one awesome. night when the kids were gone and the wife was out of town. and I watched that movie and was like, that you know, that is more uh, in line. Right. That's I do the same thing. So mm-hmm. um and the and leveling up it's it's hard I th- and I I get that as you know from the I have that experience similar with the podcasting and that you do with the authors and being around high level people begets high level uh you know, activity or it raise it raises your own bar. What I find is, you know, I might do this from the as a podcaster I can go and I can talk to people who have high level podcasts or I have guests who you know are high level in their fields and that will raise my bar in that realm but if if you look at the 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 career of law enforcement it's it's how do we get those high level people into our lives when for the person who's listening who's not a podcaster you know what I mean and who's yeah. A a cop, a husband, uh, a father, and you are in this bubble of work, days off, soccer practice, um, you know, weekend barbecues, kids' parties. It's it's a real challenge to level up Mm -hmm. when um, when you may not have necessarily access to some of those people or financial access to some of those people. I think it's easier these days with social media to be connected now to someone like Jocko Willink, or right. who we may never have a conversation directly, but kind of like that movie. I pop that movie and I flip through a Facebook feed or an Instagram feed, and maybe I get something out of that relationship. It's that's certainly one way, but how do we? I mean, how how can an officer you think go about leveling up uh, in their own life? you know, just when they're dealing with shift work and all that other stuff.
2: Yeah. It's, it's a matter of changing your mindset and uh, intentionally changing your mindset. And so like I just, my girlfriend and I came back from a Tony Robbins event last weekend and I, I don't, I don't, I know what he's going to say at these events. I've already been and, but he's just one example of many. Um, But I go because it forces me to be around people that are thinking the way that I want to be thinking and it's easy to stay trapped in your little circle Mm -hmm. and think a different way and so so I I invited some cop friends hey why don't you come I think this would be good for you first question they always ask how much much? right that's the dumbest question you could ever ask because if I tell you I have this piece of gold here that I want to give you and someone says well how much that's a dumb question because you haven't asked how much the gold is worth Right, mm-hmm. so if the gold is worth ten thousand, then I tell you it's a thousand bucks for the gold. It's cheap, and so when people are just saying, "Oh, that's too much," well, they haven't considered the value that it costs. And once you determine the value and how much it will t- impact your life in a positive way, then you have to prioritize it. And so there's all these other things that will put as a priority, like your your cable bill or buying a new TV or whatever, okay. uh, you'll do that first before these other things, when those other things won't provide any positive return. In fact, often they provide a negative return. Whereas you go to some sort of event like Tony Robbins or whoever it is that you like, uh, the return is so much so much greater than what you put into it usually that you, you just have to make it a priority, put it on your calendar, and make it happen. Take the vacation time.
0: What do we... You know, Tony Robbins is a good one, and I I could ask you 30 minutes of questions about that whole experience itself. And I'm going to a similar event in next week. I'm flying all the way across the country to go have an event with a former guest of the show, Scott Mann, retired mm-hmm. Green Beret lieutenant colonel. And uh, similar idea, a very small group, but there's a, there's there is a most definite palpable fear of going into a group of people that are performing at a level – Uh, far above where I'm at and going Mm -hmm. in uh, with that feeling that I'm, well, certainly that, you know, I don't belong or I'm an imposter. That's, though I think those are natural feelings, but, Mm -hmm. you know, someone like Tony Robbins or Scott Mann who has a program like this, cops are skeptical and, you know, our skepticism, which can easily turn into cynicism is what keeps us alive. A lot of times it's what a lot of the people in your book used to, to survive the shooting but that skepticism translates into, you know, a belief that someone like Tony is, uh, you know, a shaman or a, a con artist. Yeah. How do um how do you cuz I don't think we can they will convince themselves. How do we convince people that these kinds of things are are, are of value?
2: Well, it's an interesting question. I, I think I think most of the stories that people tell themselves or they explain it it's their way of dealing with the fear like you just described fear of going to this event because you might not be accepted or at their level or whatever it is mm-hmm. so for example i've taught jujitsu for many many years and everybody that comes in on day one they have the same fear but it's really not a rational fear when you think a guy like me who's been doing it and somebody comes in on day one I've been in that person's shoes. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to judge them, look down. So if you go to this event and some guy's in a much higher level than you, he was in your shoes at one point too. And so there's no reason, no rational reason to walk in there with that fear. And so I think often the stories that we tell, like that guy's a con artist, that guy is whatever, that guy is too expensive. These are just stories to cope with the fear. And so if cops are, they they confront things that are far more dangerous every day, right? They confront a a guy with a gun, but then they're not willing to confront their own fear of going to a seminar where they're going to be outside of their comfort zone, which for sure a cop going to a Tony Robbins event (laughs) is far out of your comfort zone by a a long reach. Uh, But look at it as a challenge. Like I can overcome this challenge and um, you know, Tony Robbins as an example. There, there's plenty of these people. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. They wouldn't
2: be connecting with that many people if it was a complete scam or a con. I, I think that's just a story people tell.
0: I think you're right. I've think you know um, i never been to an event. I'm always cu- I'm very curious. Uh, You've seen the documentary I Am Not Your Guru on yeah, Netflix. Yeah, yeah. So if anyone's curious about Tony Robbins or what his methodology is like in at least some of the seminars, there's a Netflix documentary called I Am Not Your Guru that's really interesting just as a documentary itself. Mm. Um, and you see how he works and you see how he gets the, he gets into people. Yeah. Um, what you, know, you say, you know, you describe yourself in, as one of your professions as a life coach and going back to the book or the people that were experiences, the experiences in this book. Um, what are the things we talked about? What kind of set them up for success with the, uh, with their shooting and the fact that they had a stable home life and they this wasn't a big part of their identity how can uh it's easy for uh it's easy for a young cop to throw their entire identity into being a cop because it's exciting it's new all of it's new um i have a I've worked recently with a new officer who's still you know he's still in his probationary year and he tells the story of a of a failure to use a turn signal citation as if it is just like you know. Like the sheriff, at any moment's gonna gonna congratulate him for such a big, right. big. You know, he just he's so excited about right. everything that the traffic citation uh, for a moving violation is 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 an edge of your seat kind of event.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and I yeah. don't mean
0: that to to mock him. I'm I, I laugh because I remember that, and you know, now with much time on, of course, those things aren't aren't terribly uh, adrenaline dumping anymore. <laughs> but you know one question I like to ask all my guests, or at least the guests who know directly with law enforcement is, you know, and given your perspective here as a life coach too, but what's one thing, if you could teach any, if you could teach every cop in the country, one thing, what would it be? Um, it,
2: I'll give kind of multi-part answer. Is, is the first, and I'm stemming off what you just said, is to just realize that what you're doing as a cop It really doesn't matter that much, meaning it's important and you can have important moments, but it's just not that important, not as important as we take it. So, Mm -hmm. for example, how many people miss out on their kids' baseball games or their wife's whatever important things because they've put too much importance in their job? And although there's important moments, it really isn't that important. And the sooner that you realize that if you're gone today, you will be replaced by the next guy or gal in two seconds flat and they'll never think twice about you, as soon as you realize that, which is a very disappointing reality, Mm -hmm. uh, the sooner you start focusing where you are actually pretty damn important. And that is often as a husband, wife, parent, etc., um, I think that's a very important discovery and it takes all of us going through that process on our own to figure that out. But the sooner that you could figure that out the earlier, and I'm going to cheat and give you a second one. And that will be to step outside of your comfort zone, step outside of law enforcement, expose yourself to things and ideas that are completely outside of that world and do things that are scary to you. And the more scary things that you confront the more well-rounded, more open-minded, more brave you will become. So the examples that stick out in my mind is traveling, go to some weird foreign country all alone without the comforts of American-type tourism and walk around. Uh, Another one was I I was scared of sharks, so I went to Honduras and went scuba diving with sharks. And, And that's kind of been the model of my life is to find things that are uncomfortable and go do them when you do that enough, uh, you become more open minded, a little more humble, and a little less afraid of things, and uh, life becomes a lot better.
0: I think those are both excellent <clears throat> pieces of advice. I think it's easy, and I caught myself uh, recently, you know, Easter. We just had Easter pass recently, and uh, I think it's probably the third Easter I've worked in a row. And with staffing the way it is, for us at least, um, difficult to get time off. You know, we're running minimum and ask for overtime bodies and all that and and i the thought i didn't verbalize it but the thought was well they they need me there mm-hmm. and uh, uh i need i i can't go to easter with the family because they need me at the department
1: mm-hmm. and i
0: caught myself and said well they don't need me like they don't need me sergeant garrett to they don't need they don't need me they just need a they need a warm body Right. <laughs> right? It's so and there's a distinct difference. It really is. I mean, I was filling a role that day because we have certain staffing requirements that we need to meet just like any other department. But it wasn't my unique blend of skills, knowledge and abilities that they were like, "Man, on Easter Easter morning, we really need Garrett to at work because right. man, that's right. going to be that's going to be the thing that puts us over the top for our mm-hmm. performance for the day." Not true. Not, you know. Right. It's not true. And it was absolutely a scenario where I, my life is better served if I'm with my family and with my kids. You know, That's and a, I, and a powerful that discovery, though.
2: It's a powerful discovery because we want to believe it's us as an individual that matters yeah. because that makes us feel good. Right. Uh, and we don't want to let that go. But it's powerful to let it go.
0: It goes into that contribution versus, uh, uh, I'll try the blank on the word you use. Significance. User. Significance. Yes. We feel significance by the fact that we are needed. Um, but are we contributing? Um, mm-hmm. I think that's I've I've never had a guest put those two dualities into the same idea because just thinking about it as we're talking, it's that's absolutely right. And it took me a while, um, and I, I think I came into it knowing I'm not going to save the world, um, but you realize it doesn't take you very long to realize, you know, if you've arrested the same guy three times, it doesn't take you very long to realize that crime's going to be here when you're gone. (laughs) Yep. And like you said, like the minute I leave, it's not like they're going to be like, Oh rats, man, you know, now we don't have a Sergeant. Nope. Someone else comes in and fills, you know, they go, they go, who's next on the list? You know, Oh. They're actually excited because now there's a vacancy right. and you can test for it's, it. That's <laughs> <absolutely>, <laughs> that is absolutely true. There's there's more people who would be more happy to see me leave because it means that they get an opportunity. Yep. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely dead on. And I like both of those. I think we it's it's easy to go through your career and then your life as a result without scaring yourself or challenging yourself with these other things and it's easy to get wrapped up in the day to day you know, where you realize years have gone by and say, like, we haven't taken a vacation or tried something different or even, even as weird as trying a new cuisine, right? You know, those simple things. Um, what are the things you do now to um, kind of guide your work? Uh, I'm always interested in routines. What does someone do on either a daily basis? Do you have a daily mor- a practice or a morning practice? Or what do uh, what do your days look like that help you move your uh, your objectives along. Yeah,
2: you know who asks that a lot is Tim Ferriss, and there's so many good examples that come out of that. But So I my routine, it depends on whether or not I have to be somewhere at a certain schedule or not. So those are two different types of days. Mm-hmm. My f- ideal day is that I wake up and don't have to be somewhere at a certain time. And on that day, I, um, I always do the same thing. I wake up and I have a little protein shake while I sit there and I read a book. And I always read in the mornings, Some kind of thing that's going to move me forward, some sort of self-help type book, business book, investing book, something like that that gets my mind primed for the rest of the day thinking about future things. Um, I'm usually getting my kid ready for school, and then once he's off to school, I'll either have coaching clients calls set up, or if not, I'll start doing my writing and start do writing or some sort of marketing like what we're doing here on the podcast in the mornings. Pick, uh, that my work day will fill most of the day. Pick up my kid from school, take care of him for a, a bit, and then in the afternoons is kind of my free time where I get to do my own thing. And then at the end of the day, I f- I've forgotten there. I meditate usually six days a week. Yeah. I do a type of meditation, um, and then at the nights is when I can relax and do things like watch a stupid TV show that has no purpose or or before bed I'll read a fiction story to help me fall asleep. So that's kind of the kinds of things I do.
0: What I want to I want to come back to meditation, but I, you mentioned Tim Ferriss, so I'm going to steal one of his questions because you mentioned reading. What is a book you would want to give to every cop? Wow. Except a your cop. own. Obviously your own, which is shots yeah, fired.
2: A cop. <laughs> um I I would like them to read Two books, but I think it's a real hard sell to get most cops to read them. The first one is The Power of Now. Okay. Um, Have you read that? Are you familiar with it? I'm
0: familiar, but I
2: haven't read it. Eckhart Tolle, right? Yes, yes. It's a powerful book and it's uh, wordy and difficult to read. It's easier on audiobook. Um, I've read it multiple times, but essentially, he's saying, What happened yesterday doesn't matter what's happening tomorrow doesn't matter, but this moment matters, but we spend most of our time either in the past or the future. And I don't think Tolley says this, but depression comes from worrying about the past and anxiety comes from worrying about the future. But if you and I are right here together in this moment, having this conversation, nothing else matters. The bills that I have or stress with my ex or whatever, it doesn't matter because right now we're having this conversation. Mm-hmm. And the more you put yourself in that moment, the more peaceful life becomes. Uh, the the other book, a um, Viktor Frankl book that I said, mm-hmm. it's about a guy who survives the Holocaust.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, you realize from that book that, all of our emotions truly are a choice. So we choose to be happy, sad, depressed, or whatever. So a guy can be in the Holocaust and and find a way to have peace, or he can choose to be miserable. And when you compare our lives and our problems to somebody in the Holocaust, where they're getting burned alive or all the horrible things, you realize uh, my problems aren't that bad. And if, if there's a way to find peace in that, then I can find peace in my current existence.
0: Mm-hmm. The Victor Frankel book you're talking about is "Man's Search for Meaning," right? Yes, thank you, yeah, thank yeah. you. Yes, I just reread it. Uh, fantastic book. It, it's a, that's one also that I've read several times and that I keep going back to uh, as well. Yeah,
2: did I summarize it? The same absolutely, yeah. absolutely.
0: I mean, so much of that book is just the choice and his, you know, his idea that they could take everything from him, they can take. They could take his family, they could take his clothes, they could take his house, they could force him into a prison. And they still don't have the power over his own thoughts. You know, he, yeah. he retains those and yeah. how he chooses and how he can find how he was able to find even a a glimpse of positivity in any of that was mm-hmm. amazing. And he you know, he ends up using doing his own social experiments through it. It's yeah. It's an amazing book. It,
2: the more you you get into this stuff, there's a downside because I preach this stuff to my ten year old son. Uh-huh. And the other day, I was irritated about something. I don't even remember what it was. And my dad, my son looked at me and says, "Dad, you're choosing right now to be
0: frustrated."
2: <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my god, right? <laughs> I,
0: if if my I, I do the same thing with my daughter. Uh, my son's a little young to kind of be cognizant of that, but I talk about that all the time. Like, you're choosing to be angry. You're making a choice. I'd be so proud if she spit that back at me, <laughs> you know, she's always, I was, yeah, she's I always happened. frustrated too, because yeah. I
2: want to tell him you're right, but I, I'm choosing because I want to, be I want to choose now, leave, leave me. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. <laughs> so you uh, you mentioned meditation too. What do you use? Do you, uh, do you use a guided meditation app or do you just do it yourself through practice? You've gotten your own program now. What do you do? Yeah, I just I've kind of made
2: up my own thing that I've taken from different people and and it's probably a combination of uh transcendental meditation and gratitude. So I I sit there. Sometimes I do this breathing thing that comes from Tony Robbins, which is just a bunch of rapid inhale and exhales through your nose. Um it's a little weird, but I'll sometimes do that and then after that, I'll just sit there in gratitude, which is I literally say I'm thankful that I the sun is out today and I'm thankful that my son is healthy and all these thankful things that's that we take for granted. And when you do that, it's impossible to be unhappy while thinking about these things you're grateful for. Mm-hmm. So I'll just do that for a minute or two. And then I just sit there and chant a mantra in my head, which is a transcendental meditation thing. And mm-hmm. eventually I've gotten better where the, the mantra goes away and I just have kind of silence for like five minutes in my head. Um, which is a very hard thing to do if you've not meditated. It's extremely hard, but it's a practice, a learned practice thing. Um, That's all I do. So it's like five to 10 minutes. I don't make a big deal about it, Mm -hmm. but I definitely try to start my day with that. And it was really, really hard to get me to do that because I thought it was just the most ridiculous, you know, Buddha, yoga, hippie in the, under the trees with his legs crossed. I'm like, that is not me. Like I'm a warrior, right? Like I'm Mm -hmm. a, I'm a fighter. I'm not going to do that. But once I started doing it, I realized after two to three months, if I take breaks from it, I realize how how snappy I become with people, how irritated I get when I go to Home Depot and the clerk is not the sharpest tack. And, you know, the the meditation really does calm you down with particularly your significant other, you know.
0: And that directly relates back to the warrior, though, too, right? I think, um, you know a warrior who's acting rash or from a place of emotion is going to make mistakes and is going to um, engage others in and pull others down versus someone who's able to create some space between the, 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 the stimulus or the input and the response. Mm
2: -hmm. That's
0: what we, that's what we talk about in training all the time, right? Is, is we, we sometimes have to make split second decisions, but when you fall back to the level of your training, if you've trained well, then you are able to create more space between that stimulus or the input and the response. And that's where I think we win the fight so many times, either yes. lit- literally physically or metaphorically, right? Yeah.
2: I, I think cops could use meditation so much. And, and there, I'll tell you a quick story is that why I finally did it after hearing everyone preach it from like Howard Stern and, and – um Seinfeld and Tim Ferriss and all his guests I, I, it took me a long time until finally I, I was going to this marriage therapist and and I was telling him you know this, these women they do this crazy stuff and it drives me nuts and, and he's going well it's not really crazy that's just your interpretation he's doing I'm like yeah yeah but but they're not they're crazy come on give you know side with me and finally after he goes all right I'm not going to get anywhere convincing you that so how about you meditate and I'm like no that's stupid and then I said give me some real tools so he says look When you meditate, it empties out the space, like you just mentioned, and then you're able to take in more before you want to lose your temper or get frustrated. And so I kind of came up with my own analogy that I'm like a bucket. My mind or my body is like a bucket. Mm -hmm. And it's always running with some water in it. And the more that comes in there with annoying things, a bill from the IRS or my girlfriend getting mad at me or my kids bothering me or whatever – the more full the bucket gets. And once it's full, it just takes one drop of water to spill over. And that drop of water might be my son doing something completely normal for a 10-year-old. But then I lose my mind. And so the meditation empties out that bucket and allows you to take in more without exploding. And so yeah. you correlate that to a cop out on the field. They're taking in a lot, right? They're taking in a lot of uh, negative input. A lot of people screaming and cussing and whatever. And if there's space in that bucket, they can take more without losing their temper or getting frustrated or getting stressed, PTSD, et cetera. Yeah. So I don't know if that analogy works or not.
0: Absolutely does. And I, f- I found that to be absolutely true. We've done whole episodes on meditation and how it's important. And, you know, the, the practice, I think the thing that intimidates people a lot is like you're not going to sit down and automatically get that space and that quiet brain. You're going to be off chasing thoughts. But that doesn't yes. ever change. The, yeah. pra- the, the practice, I learned this, it took me a long time to learn this, and my, my meditation habit is, is still spotty, but um, the practice isn't in having a, a completely calm and free mind. The practice is in bringing, is, is in recognizing when your mind is spinning out of control and following mm-hmm. a thought down that rabbit hole and being able to bring it back to center and practice stillness. And then it goes off again and you bring it back. You know, and it goes off again and you bring it back. That's the practice in meditation for me that I, that once I understood that that was the practice, not the practice of being still, then I found I had, I was actually quite successful. But we think, we think of meditation as, uh, I have to be completely absent of thought for five minutes and I'm not successful until I do that because I'm on a five minute, uh, guided meditation app. Right. Mm -hmm. And if I, and I fail if I don't for a long pe- time and for a lot of people, I think that's their definition of success with it. And it's, and it's like, I always tell people like, that's not how you win quote unquote win. Um, in practicing meditation, it's in the practice to bring it back. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, that's why I, I think the mat, the mantra is very helpful. Like mm-hmm. repeating a word, like the word release or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, just repeating it because then there's no failure. All you have to do is just repeat this silly word over and over in your head and you don't get caught up on, I'm screwing this up. I just got to repeat this silly word over and over. Yeah. You know. An- another interesting, I don't know if you thought of this, but I found that if I I focus on an image in my mind, and normally we tunnel vision it in the center of of our of the image. So if you look at a picture of the scenery, the beach, and the mm-hmm. seagulls, and the pier, if you try to focus on the entire image at once, so focus 100% on the pier, on the seagulls, on the surfer, on the boats, all at once. It gets you there really, really fast. It's a weird it's a weird thing. You'd have to try it and experiment yeah. with it, but it works.
0: I'll try that. So, uh last question before we tell everybody how to reach out to you and how to uh, find the book, you know, as as the author of a book who interviewed a whole bunch of officers who have been involved in shootings. The, the the sad thing is is that every day we're having more and more officers go through this experience, you know, every day or close to every day, someone is going to be involved in a shooting and hopefully they're going to come through with it on the winning side, but that's not always going to happen. But for those who have, you know, been able to go home at the end of the shift or maybe eventually, what's the kind of, what, what is a thing or what, what would you want to say to somebody who's now been in a shooting, um, and and what do you what do you want them to know?
2: Um, I, I'd rewind the story first and and tell you a story where uh, the last academy class one of the readers of my book donated money to to buy all the academy students a book, and it was great. I was able to sell them at my cost because um, I don't I'm not care about the money from the books. I really want the people to get it that it would help. And then within four days of his FTO program, he was involved in a shooting where they killed somebody and he called me and was so grateful because he said, I had no idea had I not read it. No one had ever told me before they'd read me memoranda rights and all this other stuff. So I think the first part is the preparation before of knowing what to expect so that you don't come out of the thing feeling like a quote unquote criminal because of the investigation that has to be done. So that's the first part. Uh, the second part would be to um, immediately be around some people that you feel you can talk to and open up and trust and get it off your chest and start some sort of normalcy back in life, which is hard if you're on admin leave because you're you're sitting at home. So you got to do things like get out, go for a walk, go to the gym, take your kids to the park, do things versus just sitting at home. Drinking, uh, that kind of thing. That that would, I think, have the biggest impact. Those two things.
0: I think great advice. So Chuck, where can people find the book? How do they reach out to you? How do they follow what you're doing?
2: My my home base is my website at Chuck Ryland, so C H U C K R Y L A N T dot com. dot com. You can find links to all my books and all the articles I've written and stuff there. Um, you can go to Amazon and get the books cheapest and fastest you know ordered in a overnight from amazon um that's the two best places to find me
0: and of course we'll put links uh in our show notes for people who are not able to write that down or not able to remember they can go to the net and find your episode and uh i'll have all that there so people can just click through and and purchase right there it's a book i think we should all read uh it gives great perspective it's interesting different people think different things of course and you but you the more of these experiences we read, the more easily I think we identify with them when those things happen to us. And there's that immediate, oh, you know, I'm not alone. Even though I've never been in a shooting, I've been in similar situations and thought, you know, it's interesting. I don't even know where this person is, but it doesn't matter because we've been through a similar a similar thing. So yeah. thanks for your time, Chuck. I appreciate you being on the show. Um, and uh, like I said, we'll put everything in the show notes here, and uh, maybe I need to go uh, finally read The Power of Now. You're not the first person to suggest <laughs> I read that, so I'll get cool. on that. The audio book
2: is better. The audio book is easier. Maybe I'll try that. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Chuck. Appreciate your time.
2: Thank you. I appreciate our conversation.
0: All right. Thanks for listening to The Squadron. If you like what you heard today, if you got something out of this conversation, please consider doing one of two things. Or uh, if you're feeling frisky, do them both. One is, if you haven't already, leave leave a review on iTunes. It really helps us spread the word of the show, and it helps our search ratings in uh, Apple Podcasts. That's why I always ask you to do it. The second thing is to uh, share this uh, episode with someone you know, someone who you think would get some value out of what was said today or in one of the other episodes. Grab their phone out of their hand and subscribe them to the show. Send them an email link with a particular episode you think that they would like, and uh, and help us out or share something from our uh, Facebook page. To keep up to date, you can text the Squad Room all one word to four four two 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 to get signed up for the mailing list uh, directly from your phone, and of course follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the Squad room. Uh, and also join our Facebook group. Now, I want to give you a little clip. If you held on this long, <coughs> of our uh, next episode, uh, he's uh, a man named Eric Hodgden. He's not a cop, and it's a very different conversation than what we've had recently. Uh, And it's a nice shift from some of the other topics. Uh, Eric has a story of uh, navigating grief through the death of his daughter and the experience he had with the cops that were on scene uh, that night. And I want to share a little snippet of him talking about resilience and how to maybe assist one of your fellow partners and how, how to be there for them.
1: So there's two things that I think people look for whenever they're dealing with something that they're struggling with. They're either looking for a beacon or they're looking for somebody to hold space for them. And a beacon is really a guide. They they show you the way, they uh, walk the way, uh, and they go the way. But uh, somebody that holds space for you is they they walk hand in hand with you uh, as for as long as you need it, whenever you need it, without doing the work for you and without judgment. They're just there implicitly, waiting to, to be your resource uh, for for healing, um, and and through their own experiences, they, uh, it's it's just a it's a it's a it's not a comfort zone as much as it is as a comfort uh, a comfort for your heart. It it helps take that heartache and turn it into a heart song when you're walking with somebody when they're holding space for you.
0: All right, so that's on the next episode of the Squadron, Eric Hodgson, You can go ahead and check him out uh, on the webs and uh, look forward to that conversation. It's a fantastic one. So until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.